Robin Williams was an Oscar-winning actor for movies like Goodwill Hunting, Dead Poet Society, and Good Morning Vietnam. While having the ability to make everyone around him laugh, he himself struggled with severe depression and eventually took his own life in 2014. A Pro Bowl tight end, Aaron Hernandez, was in the National Football League. He played three seasons with the New England Patriots, which during that time, if you played for the Patriots, you had a pretty good career. He had just made the Super Bowl when his career came to an abrupt end when he was charged with the murder of Odin Lloyd and was eventually convicted. He was also charged with a double homicide, which he was later acquitted with. Eventually, he was found dead when he took his own life in his cell. Whitney Houston was an American singer. She was nicknamed The Voice and was one of the best-selling music artists of all time, selling over 200 million records. She died in 2012 with heart disease and cocaine use, contributing to her drowning in a bathtub. So what do all these individuals have in common besides their tragic deaths, most of them at the life of their own hand or at the at their own hands? They were all at the top of their respective careers. Robin Williams was a critically acclaimed actor. He'd won many different awards. Aaron Hernandez had made a Super Bowl appearance. He was seen as one of the best young football players in the National Football League. Whitney Houston was one of the best artists that was around, and yet none of them found satisfaction or purpose in their chosen career paths. They were as good as you could be with the profession they'd gone into, yet they could not find joy or purpose in life. And in each case, either publicly or privately, their life started spiraling out of control. And it brings us to the question, what makes life worth living? It's not fame or power. It's not going to the top of your respective career. It's not money. As we look at different suicide metrics, usually suicide is higher with people who are wealthier. And in our text this morning, we see Paul on his way to Jerusalem. And I love how Keith described it. It's almost like Luke is giving a journal or a blog article about his travels with Paul. And as we see Paul on his way to Jerusalem and into Jerusalem, we're surprised at the concern or the lack of concern for his own life. We're going to see different people come up to Paul and say, hey, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. They're going to take your life from you. They're going to bind you. You're not going to be free anymore. Yet Paul doesn't have any concern with his own life. He doesn't have any concern with his own personal preferences. And all the plans that he'd made, he ends up turning aside as he goes to that city. He ignores all these areas that most people find joy and purpose in. This was not true for Paul. Paul didn't waste time in these pursuits. So it brings us to this question. How can we find joy and purpose in life? How can we find, how can we live a life that has joy that is past all understanding, that is unspeakable? How can we find purpose in life? Why am I here? What does God want me to do? And as we look at Acts 21, What Luke shows us is three different places that you won't find joy and purpose in life. These are three areas that Paul didn't seem to have any concern for. Would you notice them with me? First of all, in verses 116, these are the verses that Keith read. You will not find joy or purpose in your physical security. You will not find joy or purpose in life in your physical security or even your physical Life. Look with me at verses 1 through 3, and it says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came on a straight course to Kos, and on the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Parda. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We sailed to Syria, landing in Tyre, for there, there there was a ship that was to unload its cargo. So we're seeing Luke here, and he really does have an eyewitness account of Paul. When he uses that word we, he's part of this. He's traveling with Paul in this band of missionaries going to Jerusalem to bring this love offering to them. And so he says, we parted. And this word parted means to tear yourself apart from. We looked last week at Acts chapter 20, 
the last several verses, and Paul has an emotional farewell message that he gives to those believers. Remember, he does this in a town called Miletus, because if he were to go to Ephesus, it would have been very hard for him to leave. He loved the believers there. So Luke says we literally had to tear ourselves apart. We just couldn't be with them anymore because we were so emotionally attached to them. So once they did that, they set sail. They went on a course to Kos, which was about 40 miles away. It was a small island. And then from there to Rhodes, which was another 90 miles from there. These are all different islands, but they're near the coast of Asia Minor. And then from there to Parda. Then they're trying to get to Syria, so they found a ship going there. And I love how verse 3 starts. It really shows you the eyewitness detail that Luke uses. He says, when we had come inside of Cyprus, you can imagine being on a ship and you're sailing somewhere and just over the horizon, you can start to see where land was. And Luke is saying, I was there. This is what I saw as we come to the large island of Cyprus. This is where we were sailing. There they stay for a couple days and they find a bigger ship that was going to Jerusalem. Now, if you're to look on a map and we've passed some of these out, we've shown them before. What you're going to notice is that Paul stays near the land. He doesn't go into the middle, but he kind of stays near the land up there in that big red section before he starts going to Cyprus where he's on a larger boat. Why is that? Well, before he gets to that larger boat, he was in a smaller boat. And a lot of times they like to hug the land to make sure they could stop in a town, stay the night, wake up the next day, travel 40, 50 miles, stop in another town. And they did this to protect themselves from pirates and from other people who might try to board them and steal their ship. And so this is why we see so many different cities that are mentioned in some of Paul's travels. So they go to Cyprus in verse Three, and after that, they go to Syria and to Tyre, which is a city in Syria. And look with me at verse 4. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were, started, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul is in Tyre. He's quite a ways down from Antioch, which has been a city that we've seen Paul spend some time in. In fact, they were Paul's supporting church, sending church. Uh, to Asia Minor and to Macedonia. So he goes down to Tyre, and apparently there's some believers there, so he stays there for seven days. Now notice that phrase. It says the disciples that were there, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And this enters a question into our minds. Should Paul have gone to Jerusalem? And if you've paid attention, if you've noticed these little phrases, all the way from Acts 19 until now, Luke has been hinting at the fact that Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. In fact, he's not hinting at it. Paul says, I want to go to Jerusalem. And after that, he wants to go to Rome. This was part of his plan. And he says he was feeling this leading through the Spirit. So all the way up until now, Paul, through the Spirit, wants to go to Jerusalem. But now the disciples are through the Spirit, telling Paul not to go. And so that brings up the question, which one is right? Both people are doing it in the Spirit. So how do we understand who's right? It reminds me of when I played high school sports, and I played for a Christian school. Before the game, we would pray. We'd pray, Lord, help us to beat the other team. Help us to win this game. The problem was, they were praying as well. Lord, help us to win this game. Help us to beat the... So, which prayer did God listen to? And unfortunately, it was usually the other team. But I think that's just because they added better players. I don't know if they were more spiritual than we were necessarily. And so this question comes into our mind. What does it mean through the Spirit? I would say that it was right for Paul to go to Jerusalem. We'll see this a couple different moments in chapter 21. But the Spirit was leading these disciples to tell Paul not to go. Notice through the Spirit here is used in the fact that they were telling Paul not to go, not in the fact that the Spirit didn't want Paul to go. We never see that in Acts 21. We never see the Spirit say, don't go to Jerusalem. We just see the Spirit lead other people to tell Paul that. And so was the Spirit possibly showing Paul how hard this was going to be? Was he showing Paul the different trials he was going to experience? I'm not sure, but several other times in the book of Acts, we see Paul is led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so there's a lot of different opinions on this. I think it was right for him to go. You can disagree with me. 
Here's the bottom line. The book of Acts describes for us what is happening with Paul. It's not necessarily saying you have to believe this. It's just showing us Paul believed he was led through the Spirit, and other people thought through the Spirit they were led to tell Paul he shouldn't go. So this is describing the story. It's not telling us, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. I don't think the Spirit is telling any of us that to, to do that currently. So let's keep reading here. Let's look at verse 5. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. So they tried to tell Paul not to go. He still went, and so they continue. I love this scene that's described here. It says, And they all with their wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, kneeling down on the beach, and we prayed. So there's this really cool scene on the beach where everybody's kneeling down and praying. And not only do you have the men who are believers, but you have women and children as well. This shows the type of family bond that they had to the Apostle Paul. And so they go and they pray before Paul sets sail. And then he continues going in verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived to Ptolemus and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. So they're continuing to go down to Ptolemus and then to Caesarea, which is mentioned in Acts. We know that this is where a man named Philip the Evangelist was. If you recognize that name, if you think I've heard of that name before, you have. In Acts chapter 8, Philip shared the gospel in Samaria and led a great many people to the Lord. He's also mentioned in Acts 6 as one of the first deacons or servants of the church. So we've seen this person, Philip, before. He lives in Caesarea, and it says he was one of the seven. Seven refers to the first deacons in Acts 6. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, this is interesting. We don't know if he was married before he went to Caesarea, or maybe he wasn't married and he found a wife there. This was decades before that he had been in Samaria in Acts 8. Whatever the case is, his daughters are mentioned here. And they seem to have the gift of prophecy. This shows us that this gift was still in effect during this time. I don't think it's still in effect during our day today, at least in the way they thought of it then. But his daughters seem to have the ability to prophesy. And it's interesting. When we looked at Acts 2, and that was several months ago, so if you don't remember that, that's okay. One of the passages we cited was from Joel and it speaks of how your sons and your daughters will begin to prophesy. It's interesting that these women had the ability to foretell the future. At least that's how we look at it here. And so Paul stays with him. He stays with Philip and his family. And a man named Agabus comes down to meet Paul. Now we've seen Agabus as well. He was in Acts chapter 11. He was a prophet. And he foretold in Acts 11 that there was going to be a famine in the land. So he was a prophet, I believe, from the Lord. He accurately told things that were going to happen. When he comes down from Judea, he finds Paul. Look at verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So he uses this illustration. He takes Paul's belt and he binds his hands and binds his feet. And he says, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. The Jews are going to arrest you. They're going to bind your hands and feet. They're going to give you to the Gentiles. And I believe he was led by the Spirit to tell Paul this. But we don't really see Agabus tell him not to go. We see everyone else, in response to what Agabus says, tell Paul that he shouldn't go. Agabus, I believe, is showing Paul the price he's going to pay if he goes to Jerusalem. So this is what Paul does. Look at verse 12. It says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Notice how the pronoun changed. It's not just them anymore. Luke sees this illustration and he says, I think I'd better tell Paul not to go. So he says, we told Paul not to go. Luke himself is concerned for Paul's own safety. We don't know if we just means Luke and everyone else. It could be the rest of the people with Paul, Timothy, and the people that we saw earlier in Acts 20. Whatever the case may be, they're trying to persuade Paul not to go on this journey. But look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, all you're doing with this is breaking my heart. You're making me upset because I want to be with you. I want to continue my journey. But he shows that his foremost concern is not with his physical security. He says, I figure that I'll probably be imprisoned in Jerusalem. He may not have been planning on it, but he might have expected that this would happen. He even realizes that he could die there. But what did Paul say last week in Acts 20? He said, all I know is this from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's told me that I'm going to face beatings and sufferings and imprisonment everywhere I go. He says, I can't get past this. We've seen throughout the book of Acts, Paul has several close calls with his own life as he's sharing the gospel. And so Paul is not concerned with his own physical safety. He says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the regard or the disregard that Paul has for his own physical life. Look at verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They leave it to God's hands. They say, we've tried to convince Paul. He's not going to be persuaded. They leave it to the Lord. So they continue to go on their journey in verse 15. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So they finally get to the city that they've wanted to go to. And it wasn't just about getting to Jerusalem. Remember, Paul had other plans as well. He wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go past Rome. He wanted to even go to Spain. But as they go to Jerusalem in verse 16, it says, And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So he finds a man there named Manasseh. He was an early disciple. People ask, what does it mean that he was an early disciple? He could have been young in faith, early in his belief in Jesus Christ. He could have been a disciple of Jesus himself, which would make him a really early disciple, or he could have been one of the first disciples in the early church. And I lean towards that. He might have been one of the first disciples in the book of Acts. Whatever the case is, he is a Christian, and Paul and his companions do stay with him there. Now, what's interesting is Luke is with Paul, and Luke wrote the book of Luke and writes the book of Acts. I imagine, and this is just speculation, that Luke might have gotten some information from Philip And from this guy named Manasseh on how things worked in the early church. Remember, Paul wouldn't have understood that, how it worked before Acts 8, because he wasn't a Christian yet. So as Luke is there, he's probably starting to compile some information that would later become the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Either way, they're staying with this man in Jerusalem. And as we see in these first 16 verses, Paul doesn't have a concern for his life. He doesn't throw his life away. He isn't just willy-nilly with his life, but his primary concern is not on his physical safety, but rather the work of the gospel. And as I read this passage, these first 16 verses, I'm reminded of Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. His life was devoted to service, and his death meant fellowship with the Lord. So ask yourself the question, am I focused on my physical security. That doesn't mean you shouldn't keep yourself safe or have concern for your life, but do you prioritize that over what God is calling you to do? Are you living for the things of this life? Sometimes we can only be focused on our safety, our security, our pleasure, our happiness, and our contentment. But the truth is this morning, not all people get a fair crack at life. Do you realize that? Some people face disablement, disease, affliction. Some children die young. Some people face trauma and abuse and neglection and pain and suffering. Some children face home lives that are just broken. As I've worked with kids in the last couple of years, I just see family lives and I think, how can you live in that environment? How can you just keep going day after day when you have all this noise in your past? 
Not everyone gets a fair crack at life, so we can't find our purpose and our joy in this life. It has to come from somewhere else. Paul had means. He had a good life before he was saved, but it was not what he found his purpose and his satisfaction in. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the life in Christ that is worth living for. I'm reminded of the song we sang that we are not our own. We belong to the Lord. He's redeemed us. He's bought us with his blood. That starts to answer the question of what is our purpose in life. We not only see that we will not find joy and purpose in our physical security, we also won't find it in our personal preferences. Look with me at verses 17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So they come to Jerusalem. Remember, this was the center of the early church for the first several chapters of Acts. And there were thousands of Jewish Christians there. Paul comes back from his missionary journeys a couple times to update this church on how things are going. And so when he comes back, he says, people were happy to see us. At verse 18, on the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. Who's James? He's the half-brother of Jesus. He was really in charge of the early church. He was the center guy in the church in Jerusalem, I should say. Not the early church, but the church that was in Jerusalem. Now, we don't see Peter and we don't see John. We can assume that they were traveling during this time. We know that they did a lot of traveling around the time that Paul would have been in Jerusalem. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul starts telling them, these are the things that are happening in Macedonia and Asia Minor and Achaia, all these Gentile regions. Now remember, the Jerusalem Christians were primarily Jewish. And so they had a different background. But as Paul starts to explain what's happened, look at verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God. And we don't want to miss this. The rest of these verses that we're going to read in the second point are kind of confusing and murky and tough for us to understand. But I want us to first of all see that they were excited about the work that was being done. They were excited that Gentiles were being saved. In fact, so much so that as they hear this missionary update from Paul, it says they glorified God. So we see a positive response to the work that Paul is doing. With that, though, comes a very difficult situation that Paul and the Jerusalem Christians find themselves in. Look at the rest of the verse. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jew who have believed. So James and the elders, they point out something obvious. There's a lot of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So a lot of people with Jewish background. In fact, thousands. We see in the early chapters of Acts, thousands were added to the church. So there is a large community there in Jerusalem, which is great. But look at what the rest of the verse says. Among they are zealous for the law. So these are Jewish Christians. They have a high regard for the law of Moses, zealous for it. To be zealous here means to have a concern. You're committed to the side or cause. You're an enthusiast, adherent, or a loyalist. And I want to say this. I don't necessarily think their commitment to the law was wrong. As we see here, I believe their commitment to the law was more ethnic than spiritual. Paul himself had a high commitment to the law. Now, you'll see in Galatians and in Romans, he'll say, we're not under the law, we're free in Christ, yes. But in Acts 18, Paul took a Nazarite vow, which showed that he still honored his Jewish customs. Why did Paul want to go to Jerusalem? To celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. So he still had a regard for some of the Jewish law. Why was this? It was ethnic. Paul was Jewish by ethnicity, but I don't think it was a spiritual concern, and it wasn't something he was pushing on Gentiles. He tells them, 
that they're free to do what they want in Christ. So these people have a zealous concern for the law. Verse 21, And they have been told about you that you teach Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk in our customs. Here's the problem with these Jewish Christians. They were saved. I genuinely believe that. They cared about the law, which was good, but they were prime targets for false teaching. And there were some false teachers who had crept into this church in Jerusalem, and they were starting to gossip about Paul. They were starting to say things that weren't true. There's a couple of things that are specifically mentioned here. First of all, you teach all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, Paul doesn't tell the Jews this ever. He tells the Gentiles, you're not under the law. You don't have to live under the law. You're free. And it's not that the Jews were bound to the law, but they could, as ethnic Jews, follow the law as part of their heritage. This example that he gives is even that they were saying Paul was telling them to not circumcise their children, which we know, again, ethnically was a big part of the Jewish belief. So I think this is more ethnic than spiritual, the concern that they have. And these were blatant lies. We never see any of this take place in Paul's writings. He never tells Jewish parents not to circumcise their children. Look at verse 22. He says, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Paul was a very influential, popular figure in the early church. People knew who he was. So if he was coming back to Jerusalem, people would hear that he was coming, and this could cause a major division in the early church. So what were they to do? How would they show these Jewish Christians that Paul wasn't throwing away the Jewish ethnic heritage, but also that the Gentiles were free in Christ to not circumcise their children and to not have to follow the law? Well, James proposes an idea, and let me just say that as James promotes this idea, this makes it one of the most controversial passages we'll see in Acts. Look at what James says. He says, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself live in observance to the law. So James promotes this idea, and it's a little tricky for us to understand, but we're going to walk through it and see what this was, and if it was right for Paul to do. Because there are some people who want to say that it was not right for Paul to do this, that he actually sinned by doing this. So let's look at what James says. First of all, you have four men who are under a vow. What vow was this that they were talking about? I believe it was a Nazarite vow. Now, we saw Paul take a Nazarite vow in Acts 18, but just as a review, to be a Nazarite, it meant that you would not cut your hair for a specific number of days, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And it's not just because you're trying out a new haircut or fad or something. All the kids right now are trying to grow their hair out super long, and it's just all over the place. It's not because of that, but it was a vow in honor to the Lord. With that, you wouldn't touch anything that was dead, which I don't know about you, that's pretty easy for me to not touch anything that was dead. And then you couldn't take anything that was from the vine. So wine, juice, juice, you weren't allowed to drink or have any contact with those types of things. The most famous Nazarite was Samson. Now he took a vow and it was for his entire life. His family, his parents had him take that vow when he was born. But most Nazarite vows only lasted 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days. So we can assume from the context that these people were under a Nazarite vow. So he says, we have these four men under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them so that they may shave their heads. So they would have this purification ceremony that was part of this Nazarite vow Now, what's interesting is that he says that Paul was to purify himself. Why did Paul need to purify himself? He wasn't in sin. There are people, there are a lot of people, who believe that James had Paul do this 
because he was visiting Gentile countries, because he was going to Asia Minor and Macedonia and Achaia, and therefore he was unclean. Now, I myself have a problem with that. I don't think we see that anywhere in Scripture that when Paul went to these Gentile countries, he had to come back and purify himself. There's a lot of people who think that's why Paul had to do this. I would say maybe a better alternative, and there's a lot about this we just won't know because we weren't there and it's confusing. I would say this, that if, as we remember Acts 18, Paul takes his Nazarite vow, he cut his hair, but he also wanted to go to Jerusalem in part to complete that vow before God and to do the necessary things that were required. So could this be that Paul was to purify himself to finish his own vow that he'd taken before God before he even came to Jerusalem. We can't be sure, but I think in part, maybe this is why James has Paul purify himself. So he used to take these men that would all go through this ceremony. It would be about seven days, and then they would shave their heads. Now, Paul had already shaved his head in uh, Synecrochi, which is one of the towns over in Achaia, The purpose for this, it says later, thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance to the law. Be careful with how you read this. Don't take this to mean that Paul was a legalist, that Paul taught Gentiles that they had to obey the law of Moses. I don't even think Paul thought Jews had to obey the law necessarily, but Paul is honoring his Jewish heritage. Like I said, I think this is more ethnic than spiritual, what is going on here. And why is Paul doing this? Why does he tell Paul to do this? So that he can have a better ministry with the Jewish people that he would be in Jerusalem with. Now look at verse 25. This answers the question, what about the Gentiles? Does this mean they have to live according to the law? And it says there, but as for the Gentiles who believed... We sent out a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled in sexual immorality. So if you can remember back to Acts 15, they made a decision, do the Gentiles have to follow the law? And the answer is no. The Gentiles needed to stay away from idolatry and from sexual immorality, things that were clearly sinful. And so James references this. So in verse 26, it says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day purified himself along with them, and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering would be presented. So we see Paul here purifies himself. He goes along with this plan from the early church. And you might ask the question, was this right for Paul to do? And many people want to say no. Many people want to say here that Paul was compromising himself for his own beliefs. But I don't think this was wrong for Paul to do. What I think he's doing is honoring his ethnic heritage and therefore making sure he has a testimony with the Jewish people that he's trying to share the gospel with and help as believers. He's not telling Gentiles to do this. He's telling him, he, he himself is doing this so that he can have this opportunity to minister to them. What I think we see here is Paul giving up his personal preferences for the betterment of his ministry. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for just a moment. Paul knew that the gospel was something new, that it wasn't just for Jewish people, but that it was for everyone, that the Gentiles didn't have to obey the law. But one of the things we see is people struggle with this new identity that we have in Christ. So look with me at verse 22 of chapter 9. Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What Paul is showing here is that he doesn't have a regard for his own preferences. It wasn't wrong for Paul to do this, but he didn't have to do this. And I want us to understand that clearly. 
Paul didn't have to take this vow. He didn't have to go help these men. And I didn't mention this earlier. I should have. Part of Paul helping these four men meant that he was going to pay for their meal. Every person who took this Nazarite vow had a bunch of fees and they had to pay for these offerings, which would have been very expensive to do. And so Paul himself pays for these men to take this vow. So not only was it something Paul didn't have to do, that maybe wasn't his preference, but now he's out quite a bit of money because of it. And why does he do this? He does this for the sake of his ministry in the area. So ask yourself the question, people live for their preferences all the time. Have you ever met a person where things have to be done exactly the way they want it, with no compromise? It's not wrong necessarily for you to want to do things your way, but some people insist on their own way and they think, I'm only going to find purpose, I'm only going to find joy in doing things exactly the way that I want them to be done. This isn't what Paul wanted to do when he came to Jerusalem, but he was willing to do it for the sake of his ministry there, for the sake of the unity of that church. It's wrong to compromise on sound doctrine, and Paul understood that. We, under, we know that from Paul's own, own letters. But Paul willingly sacrifices his preferences for the sake of the gospel. So what about you this morning? Is there anything in your life you wouldn't sacrifice for Christ? Don't sacrifice your morals or your doctrine, but are you willing to lay aside your own preferences for others? The things we latch on to, the things we put closest to our heart, the things we want exactly our way, oftentimes they're idols. They're things that we put in priority above God. Sometimes we value our freedom over our relationship with Jesus. And the irony of that is that we often become slaves to sin. Will you surrender your preferences to Christ, realizing that you will not find joy or purpose in them? Lastly, I want us to see you will not find joy and purpose in your well-intentioned plans. In your well-intentioned plans. Look with me at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, so this was the week that this vow would have taken place, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laying hands on him. So Paul is in the temple. He's trying to finish this vow. He sacrificed his preferences to do this. And it said some Jews from Asia saw him there. Now, who are these Jews from Asia? It's probably from Asia Minor. They could have been any number of people. They might have been from Ephesus, though, which we know had a huge hold on Paul's heart. So as they see him there in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. So they start stirring up the crowd against Paul, saying that he's against the temple. They did this to Jesus as well. He's against the Jewish people, the temple. He's against the law of Moses. Look at what, it continue, what they continue to say. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. So the argument or the charge against Paul was that he was bringing Gentile people into the temple. Look at what the rest of it says. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul was being brought, was bringing him to the temple. So Paul had this Ephesian man with him, Trophimus. We saw him in Acts 20. He probably did go with Paul to the temple, but there were different parts of the temple that Gentiles could go to. They could go to the court of the Gentiles. But they were not allowed to go to the inner parts of the temple where the Jews had access. We don't know where Paul took him. We just know that this man was probably with Paul in the temple. This causes a mob. This causes confusion. In verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the, the temple gates were shut. So as they see Paul, they form an angry mob. 
They grab him. They rush him out of the temple. The temple itself was worried about this mob. So they shut their doors and all this chaos is broken loose. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. A tribune was a Roman officer in charge of a thousand people, a thousand soldiers. They had 10 centurions under their control. So as he hears this, that there's this mob, he immediately takes action. And you ask the question, why? Why did the Romans get so concerned that this was happening? They didn't want a mob. They didn't want this happening. They didn't want an angry riot in Jerusalem. The Jewish people had a history for causing mass chaos and confusion in their city. And when this happened, Rome was very angry. So the tribune was in charge of making sure there wasn't these riots that were going on. So as they're seeking to kill Paul, he gets word of this in verse 32. He at once took the soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now that right there is important. I wonder if they wouldn't have come, if the Romans wouldn't have come, if the Jews just wouldn't have beaten Paul to death. In one sense, we see that the Romans might have saved Paul's life here. So as they come in verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. This, I believe, fulfills what Agabus said, that he'd be bound in his hands and his feet and given from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. And that's what we see taking place here. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. I think that shows just the confusion. If you've ever been in a big crowd, you can't really hear anything. You hear people just shouting things over each other, trying to talk, and it just leads to more chaos. It reminds me of what we saw in Acts 19 with the riot in Ephesus, where some of the people didn't even know why they were rioting. They just wanted to be part of an angry mob. We see this mass riot here in Jerusalem. And it's troubling the tribune. In verse 34, it says, And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. So the tribune says, I can't hear anything. Everyone's just talking over one another. So he brings Paul to this fortress. This is probably the fortress of Antonia. Verse 35, And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The Jews really did not like Paul. And they were so violent that they had to carry Paul into this fortress. For the mob and the people followed, crying out, away with him. That might be better translated as kill him in Greek. Either way, they want to see an end or a destruction to the Apostle Paul. And Paul might have been expecting that this would happen. We see everyone else in his life says, Don't go to Jerusalem. And this was really their worst nightmare. They knew that Paul had a chance to be arrested and beaten and even killed when he was there. And this wasn't Paul's plan. Paul wanted to go to the city and continue his missionary journeys as a free man. What this shows here in Acts 21 is a shift in the ministry of Paul. He's really had his last moments as a free man where he can go wherever he wants and go on these missionary journeys and share the gospel. Now he's going to do all his work while in prison. We'll see him write several letters in the New Testament from prison. He'll share the gospel with several different important officials. We see that God still uses the Apostle Paul in a great way from prison. But this was not Paul's plan. This isn't what Paul wanted. But he was willing to do it for the gospel. Paul was not latched on to his plans. He didn't think that it had to be done this way. He was submissive to the will of the Lord. I don't know about you. I feel like every time I plan something out and I say things have to happen this way, the Lord takes those plans and he throws them out the window and he says, this is how things are going to happen. Paul wanted to have an impact. He wanted to have a ministry He wanted to be used by God. And I really do believe that this imprisonment from God was the best thing for Paul's ministry. That it gave him access to important officials and to governors and to people that Paul never would have had 
the ability to share the gospel with before. It helps him have this gospel ministry with others. And we see here this answer to the question of where will you find your joy and purpose in life? We've seen this morning that you won't find it in your physical life, your security. You won't find it in your preferences and you won't find it in your plans. But turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 as we close this morning. I believe what we see here is Paul's secret for contentment and joy in life. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We see that Paul had contentment through Christ. Paul says, no matter what situation I'm in, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, whatever is going on with myself, Jesus Christ gives me contentment. We also see that Christ gives him strength. Keep reading in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Whatever happened to Paul, he could be content. And why is that? Look at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, people want to put this on logos and on sports t-shirts, and they want to make this the verse that says that they can do whatever they want. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. But in every circumstance, Paul could be content. In every situation, Paul could be happy. No matter what was going on, Paul had purpose. And that is better than any superpower or ability that you could ask for. Paul had found the way to be content. And what is that? It's through his relationship with Christ. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You won't find joy and purpose in this life. This life can't provide that. But you can find joy and purpose in Christ. Look at verse 4 of the chapter. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Joy is a huge theme in the book of Philippians. We see that Christ gives us joy. We can know what it means to have purpose and joy in life through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this doesn't resonate with the world. The world will think we're crazy for finding joy and purpose in Christ. In fact, let me read you a story as we close. In the early 1900s, 16-year-old William Whiting Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. He was an heir to the Borden fortune. His parents had a lot of money. Before Borden began his Ivy League education at Yale University, his parents sent him on a trip around the world for his graduation present. How'd you like that if after you graduated, your parents sent you on a trip around the world to just see the world? Early in Borden's life, he had come to Christ through the great ministry of D.L. Moody. While on his trip around the world, something happened that no one expected. As Borden traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Borden wrote a letter to his parents and informed them that he wanted to spend the remainder of his life being a missionary. Upon hearing the news, one of his friends remarked that he would be throwing his life away as a missionary, giving up his Yale education, throwing his life away as a missionary. Upon his return, Borden went to Yale University and graduated. He then studied and graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. When Borden finished his Ivy League education, he boarded a ship for China and he served as a missionary. Due to his passion to reach the Muslim people, he stopped in Egypt to learn the Arabic language. While in Egypt, 25-year-old Borden contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, he was dead. When the, world heard, when the news of Borden's death was cabled back to the United States, nearly every major American newspaper reported on it. As stated in his biography, a wave of sorrow went around the world. He not only gave up his fortune, but he himself to be a missionary. Borden walked away from one of the most wealthy fortunes in the U.S. to take the gospel 
to the nations of the world. Most regarded it as a tragedy. However, God took the tragedy and did something far greater than Borden could ever do himself. When thousands of young men and women read Borden's story in the newspapers of America and inspired them to leave all that they had and give their lives to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Borden's parents were given his Bible, they found the following. Just after he renounced his fortune to go to missions, he wrote the words, No Reserve. His father told him he would always have a job in the company. Then at a later point, his father told him he would never let him work in the company again because he was throwing his life away. At this time, Borden wrote in his Bible, No Retreat. And then shortly before his death, he had written the words in his Bible, No Regrets. And this man, this man who had ended his life at age 25 from this disease he'd contracted, only had 25 short years in this life, and we think that's young, and that it's such a waste. Yet he gave his life to the Lord and found his joy and purpose in Christ. So as he reflects on his life, he says, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No matter what our situation is this morning, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, happy or sad, what trials you face, what suffering is in your life, you can find joy and purpose like this young man had in your relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul and his concern, not for his life, but for the gospel and for ministry. Help us to have that concern as well this morning, Lord. Help us to not have any regrets at the end of our life, but to just simply want to hear the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would bless our fellowship in the coming moments. In Jesus' name, amen.